Hello, welcome to my podcast, The Meiji Restoration, A China Contrast. And this is episode 10, the last episode of this season, and it is named Closing and Resolution. In my last episode, we saw Japan really come of age. Japan wisely sought and got an alliance with England. With that in hand, they challenged Russia for control over China Manchuria. We learned it was a swift and decisive victory by Japan. It gave Japan unquestioned dominance in Asia, becoming a pan-Asian superpower. In this episode, I will wrap up the podcast series and the season and answer the question I posed in the introduction. Why did Japan seem to prosper against Western assault, but China did not? But before I get to that, I need to summarize the Korean thing that I covered throughout this podcast series. I want to summarize that because it is difficult to keep it all together, and a lot happened. I also believe those events are important to the history of the Meiji Restoration and explain much of what was going on during that time. Korea was obviously a big part of the Meiji era's history. You will remember, in 1868, the Japanese felt the Koreans had disrespected them because they refused to recognize the Meiji Emperor. And then, in 1873, the two nations nearly went to war, eventually agreeing to the Treaty of Kanghua or Ganghua in 1876. With that treaty, Japan recognized Korea as an independent nation, despite China's protectorate over Korea for centuries. That led to tensions between Japan and China. At first, those two nations sought peaceful means and led to a treaty in 1885 called the Treaty of Tientsin, where both countries agreed to withdraw their military forces from Korea and to behave themselves. That peace lasted about 10 years. Korea, again, was the initial focal point when in 1895, Japan and China went to war in the First Sino-Japanese War. The second one between these two, these two countries would not be until World War II. Finally, Korea indirectly 
was one of the causes of the Russo-Japanese War in 1904. So you can see Korea plays a pivotal role in much of what was going on in Meiji Japan and in Asia at that time. So I want to end out the Meiji era before I get into answering the question that I posed throughout this podcast series. By the middle of 1905, the United States gave its blessing to Japan's interests in Korea. November 1905, Japan entered into a new treaty with Korea. And forgive me for the pronunciation, but the treaty is called ULUSA, E-U-L-S-A, ULUSA Treaty. And that treaty made Korea a Japan protectorate. The name of the treaty is for the year it was adopted. And that's the name of the year in the Korean calendar. It was negotiated by Ito Hayabume. More on him later. Under the treaty, Japan was completely responsible for Korea's foreign affairs and all trade was under Japanese supervision. The Japanese knew they could exploit its hard-fought and costly gains with little fear of foreign interference. In early 1906, Ido Hirobumi was appointed Resident General of Korea. Through Ito, Japan pressured the Korean king to abdicate, and he officially and he officially did so at the end of 1907. Ito Hirobumi, along with others like Yamagata Aratomo and Matsukata Masuyoshi, stand out as some of the more notable officials. Ito's resume was impressive. He was the principal draftsman of the 1889 Meiji Constitution. He was also Prime Minister of Japan four times. He also was Vice Minister of Finance. And he was part of the Iwakura mission to the U.S. and Europe in the early 1870s. He was also a cabinet member of the new Meiji Constitution. And he negotiated the Treaty of Shimonoseki that ended the Sino-Japanese War. He was president of the Privy Council and, of course, the resident general of Korea. He attended Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in 1897. The Meiji Emperor eventually bestowed on Edo the Marquis title. And Ito was a moderating moderating voice in Korea. He openly promoted making Korea a protectorate, but was less enamored with, but not opposed to, Korean annexation. His full life, unfortunately, met a tragic end. 
He was shot and killed by a Korean nationalist fanatic at a train station in Harbin, China, in October of 2000, I'm sorry, of 1909. Incidentally, he had resigned his position of resident general in Korea earlier that year. Japan, relieved by then of Chinese and Russian competition, saw the opportunity to annex Korea. And in August 1910, they did so. The annexation brought not a single protest from any foreign nation. A partial explanation for this silence was that, at that time, it was accepted that strong and advanced nations had the right to rule over weaker ones. It was considered beneficial to both nations. The conquered nation received money, and development. It was clear, however, both Korea and Taiwan largely resented the repression that Japanese control brought. Japan's colonial rule over Korea would last over 30 years, finally coming to an end in World War II. On July 30th, 1912, the Emperor Meiji Musohito died of kidney failure related to diabetes. He had been a strong ruler for 45 years. He had witnessed astounding changes from a feudal society and system to superpower status. Emperor Taisho succeeded him. So ended the Meiji Restoration, or Meiji Emperor Era. Up to his death, Japan had enjoyed a relatively long period of political peace and stability. His death, however, exposed a major flaw to the 1889 Meiji Meiji Constitution. What happens in the event the emperor dies? Now, That seems to be an obvious issue that would not have been overlooked when they adopted the Constitution. And it probably was not overlooked because it may have been assumed by both the ones that drafted the Constitution and the ones that adopted the Constitution that the Privy Council would step in and fill the void. Eventually, of course, Another emperor, Taisho, succeeded him. But not before the power vacuum caused the nation to break into semi-autonomous elite political groups. Nevertheless, without question, Japan was well set for the next several decades. And before I leave the Japanese here and end this podcast series... I want to share some stats highlighting the development of Meiji Japan. And then I will get into discussing the reasons for Japan's success and China's failures responding to 19th century Western aggressions. Near the start of the Meiji Restoration, vehicle factories numbered 18. 
1902, there were 73. Before 1876, there were eight machine factories in Japan. In 1902, there were 136. For textile mills, before 1876, there were 123. In 1902, they had grown to 1,630. In the mid-1890s, coal production was 5 million metric tons. By the end of the Meiji era, that had risen to over 21 million metric tons. In the mid-1890s, Japan had 169 steamships. By the end of the era, there were 1,514. Finally, there were 2,100 miles of railroad track in Japan in the mid-1890s. By 1912, it had increased to 7,100 miles. I could bore you and go on and on and on, but I think you get the point. Tremendous growth, tremendous modernization in a period of roughly 40 to 45 years. Now, as I've made it very clear, one of my goals with this podcast series was to answer the question that I posed in the introduction to this podcast series. Why did Japan seem to prosper against Western assault, but China did not? Throughout this season, I've answered that, sprinkled throughout the various episodes. But now, I want to finish this season in a flurry, so I will go through the answers. Separated by only a decade or so, both Japan and Chinese experienced unprecedented assault by foreign nations. This makes their responses to the assaults easier to compare because it happened in the same era. It is not like comparing an event that happened in Nation A with a similar event that happened in Nation B 100 years later, right? Japan managed to minimize the damage done by the assault and even advanced themselves, while China or the Qing Dynasty made the damage worse and destroyed itself. Why? Was it random or coincidental? Or were there other factors in play? Keep in mind the following. Both Japan and China endured rebellions and internal disorders as they dealt with the Western foreign assaults. By any measure you want to use, China had it much worse for both foreign assaults and internal disorders and rebellions. And I'm only going to use the period between 1840 and 1900-1900. Other than the Boshin War and the Satsuma Rebellion, 
those were only two large, those were the only two large internal rebellions in Japan within that time frame. For China, within that time frame, there was the Taiping, the Neon Uprisings, and the Boxer Revolt. I'm pretty sure either of these were significantly larger in scope than either of the events the Japanese faced. As for foreign assaults, the Japanese dealt with the assaults by Commodore Perry and then later naval bombardments from the English. But these pale in comparison to the two opium wars and the relief of the foreign legations by the eight-nation alliance that ended the Boxer Uprising in China. I realize these events I just described were results from previous failures. So in that respect, not cogently revealing as to the real problems or benefits. Fair enough. I will offer cogent circumstances. Again, I have discussed all of these in the prior episodes. China's woes stemming from Western or foreign assault or intervention began at least a decade before it was visited on Japan. This gave the Japanese time to make adjustments and come to grips with the inevitability of foreign approach. Japan was horrified by the reports out of China caused by the English in the first opium war. We know Japan started then to explore Western culture and education. Japan, at the very least, knew what was coming and to brace for it. China had contact with Western traders going back to the 17th century. Every opportunity was afforded the Chinese to learn from them. But the Chinese were trapped in the mindset that early traders were barbarians and inferior to them and that they were only interested, that is, the foreigners were only interested in paying tribute to the Qing emperors in order to buy Chinese things, such as tea or silk. So the Chinese learned very little, even after the First Opium War. By the time Commodore Perry arrived in Tokyo Bay, the Japanese had been warned decades earlier from the Dutch traders. Japan began their modernization a decade before the arrival of the American ships. Japan at the beginning embraced Western ideas, culture, and education. Japan used this to respond to the Western assault. Instead, China sent their military to respond to Western assault. China is also a diverse country ethnically. Not everyone had the same core beliefs. Japan, on the other hand, was relatively homogeneous and core ideals widely shared. Japan, being the much smaller country geographically, had better national communications. Hindering the Manchus was its political monolith, everything to and for the benefit 
to the emperor. Edo Japan had then followed by the Meiji were politically diverse. The shogun had his duties to the country and the samurais led locally. So the Japanese had always had a diverse governance. On the other hand, a poor Manchu emperor spelled trouble. And the Qing dynasty's emperors in the 19th century tended to be mediocre at best to terrible at the worst. Because Japan had one time and for a long time been a tributary of China, she learned or was accustomed to adopting to circumstances where it had limited control, to playing second fiddle. Japan was willing to learn and adapt. It can never be quantified the extent opium trade and addiction was an issue for China, but it most certainly must have had some negative effect. China is a geographically huge country country and strategically located. Bigger borders to defend. Japan, an island nation. Vast oceans or seas surround it. China had more natural resources. And Japan changed its entire government and culture during the time of Western aggressions. Japan's immersion into modernization was total and transformative. China's immersion was only superficial. China only wanted modernization or Western ideas for the purposes of benefiting the monarchy. This meant her limited goals could only yield limited results. I am also reasonably sure that the indemnities the Manchus were forced to pay were crippling. In some of those instances, Japan was the recipient of the indemnities. Everything I've stated, you don't have to take my word for any of it. But, listen to the opinion of others that have spoken about these differences. A Japanese writer, Kuobara Takio, lists the most important conditions or prerequisites that made Japan successful. Some of those listed are good good geographic location, racially homogeneous, secluded, high rate of education, and adaptability. Western scholar Kenneth Henshaw summarized the prerequisites as follows. Cultural and political flexibility, pragmatic, Japanization of foreign elements, willingness to learn, determined to succeed, and nationalistic. Chinese scholar Emmanuel Husu listed some of the reasons China's modernization was hampered. His list is large country, poor communications, lack of any traditional of borrowing from abroad, poor leadership, ignorance of the nature of the West of the Western challenge, 
national and international turmoil. Manchu suspicion of anyone not Manchu. Finally, American scholar John Fairbank lists these reasons for poor Manchu results as Western intervention impeded China's chances to modernize, poor leadership, arrogance. So all of these that I've listed were contributory factors in the different response China deployed in the onslaught of Western aggression compared to China, compared to Japan. The one prerequisite or lack of it that seems consistent is leadership. I know boiling it all down to leadership may be a serious oversimplification. Nevertheless, I think we can all agree that good or bad leadership goes a long way. That's it for this season. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. More importantly, I hope you've learned something not only about the question that was at hand, but also about the Meiji and Edo era of Japan, and also a little bit about the Qing dynasty in China. It never ceases to amaze me how facts and circumstances sometimes never change, or they repeat themselves. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. Thank you.